Erev Tov, Erev Tov. Did everyone get the email that I sent out uh, earlier today with the PDF yeah. file? Yes? Yeah. Yeah, Okay, beautiful. For those who didn't get it for whatever reason, if you look in the attachment on the Zoom invitation in the Google Classroom, you're going to see it over there. So you'll pull up wherever I sent the Zoom link, and at the bottom, there'll be a PDF file. Uh, or in the classwork section, there'll be a PDF file titled uh, Thou Shalt Not Rust. Bazat Hashem, we'll get into that in just a moment. All right, before we start, just a few reminders. So first and foremost, I welcome everyone to please chime in, to please unmute yourself at any point in time. You want to ask anything, say anything, just go right ahead and uh, be, be a little American and rude and interrupt me. Uh, you're welcome to do so. Uh, I will not be able to monitor the chat box. I will not be able to monitor the chat box. So just make sure that if you're sending stuff there, it's more than happy if you guys chat with each other. But to me, I won't be able to see it, at least not until the end of uh, the shi'u. B'zad Hashem. I wanted to throw an idea out before we start this next, this next hour of learning together. B'zad Hashem. When we were discussing what we would start here in the United Kingdom, but also anywhere, we've always chose, chosen the word Bet HaMidrash. The reason Bet HaMidrash and not something else like a learning center or uh, any other class, lecture, series, whatever it would be, is for the very simple reason that in a Bet HaMidrash, Limud Torah, the study of Torah is dynamic. It's, it's something that, that is interactive. It's something that doesn't start and doesn't end you come one day, you come the next day, you come the next day. You may not be interested in learning what you learn one day, but you're there because of the next day and the day afterwards. It's part of a bigger picture that you're trying to build. As people stay in a bit of Midrash, they get to know each other better. We get to know each other better. The questions that are asked start to be more fine-tuned towards what the general spirit of the bit of Midrash is. That's not the same thing as a lecture. When someone comes to a lecture, normally there's a beginning, there's a middle, there's an end. Uh, it's re- ni- nicely uh, wrapped up with a bow on top and everyone just goes home happy. Uh, I aim that the things that we study here should be part of a much bigger picture. If you ask me where we're going, where are we headed, beyond the next shiul or two, I don't actually know where we're going to take us. Oftentimes, it's the questions that happen after the shiul that inspire me to think of the next topic that we're going to do next week. Don't worry, we are not discussing cheese or milk or chalav Israel today. Not yet. Though I'm sure we will get there. But we're laying down some groundwork. And for the next few weeks, I would like to expose us to three different Chachamim from three different places who talked about three completely different things, but all have the same underlying message. And I titled tonight's Shu, Thou Shalt Not Rust, as perhaps the 11th commandment in Halakha, that a person should not become rusty. We're going to discuss that in just a moment. But let me do this first. Has anyone here ever heard of Harav Ben Sion Meir Chai Uziel? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You've mentioned it before. Yeah, of course. In your talk about um, trying to reconcile differences and uh, and trying to come up with one Sanhedrin. Oh, you very good. That was uh, our shiur in uh, Israel, uh, Stockholm syndrome, that we call that one. Uh, very good. Has aside from that shiur, has anyone ever had a chance to study any writings of Rav Uziel inside? Yes, I learned some of his Tishvivot about Gerut um, last year. Oh, wonderful. Okay, Baruch Hashem. So, 
Yeah, I think if that was the one in the, there was a very good article which I think, which I think I saw his stuff on Garrett was was really really. Yes, there's a there's a very good article by Rabbi Angel that I might suggest I might post it to the group later, yeah. uh, which is comparing him and Rav Kook on three different issues and showing how you know you always have the certain image of Rav Kook and maybe not of Rav Uziel if you don't know him, but when you start to compare these two I mean who are very good friends, so I'm not here to pit them against each other, but you really notice the the difference in worldview, not just in details, but in worldview between these two Chachamim. The truth is that I came to Rav Uziel. Not so much in the realm of halakha, I won't lie to you. Uh, Rav Uziel's halakhot are, are outstanding. There are they're some very unique approaches to halakha which are very relevant and they actually get more relevant as we move away from the lifetime of Rav Uziel. Rav Uziel has a number of books on essays, Michmenei Uziel, Hegyonei Uziel, which is a two-volume book on emunot and deot, all the different beliefs that Am Yisrael has or should have or shouldn't have, whatever it would be. Uh, Rav Uziel was was a cross of a chacham, a poet, uh, a, I don't know the word, philosopher. When Rav Uziel writes, he writes wearing his heart on his sleeve, but never forgetting his mind. It's a very unique combination. And sometimes in my kila, you know, we sit here, it's a Roshana, two days in, or it's a three-day holiday of Sukkot, and how much can you listen to me talk already? So my kila, we sit around in a circle, we say, what are we going to study now? We pull out Rav Uziel, and anything you read from Rav Uziel, the, the flowery language, the beauty in which he speaks, it really, it uplifts, it uplifts the soul. And I, if I cannot, if you haven't done it until today, I cannot recommend enough to familiarize yourself with the writings of Harav Ben Zion Meichai Uziel, not just in Halakha, but also to see him beyond the realm of Halakha. But Rav Uziel, like most Chachamim, couldn't be put in a box. And that's why he encompasses more than just one little area of Torah. Yeah, but tonight we actually are going to deal with him and Halakha and his approach to Halakha and uh, talk about, begin to talk about some of the issues that many of you brought up when we first started formulating uh, this, this set of Shi'uim. But let's start in the place where I like to start, and that is in the Hebrew Wikipedia article. Uh, Wikipedia is not the most authoritative source in the world, but it was better than many of the other articles of Rav Uziel. Unfortunately, in English, there's, there's very little. The things that are written about Rav Uziel are are bare-boned or very specific into one area of his life. Uh, but a wholesome picture of Uziel, aside from, aside from, if I can tell you, there is a book also by Rabbi Angel. Uh, I think both of them actually wrote the book together. Uh, maybe it's called Loving Truth and Peace, The Grand Religious Worldview of Rabbi Ben-Zion Merchai Uziel. It is one of my favorite books in the world. I, I cannot, I cannot, my favorite, meaning it might even be better than the books that Rabbi Uziel wrote himself. Now, the, this book includes so much of his life, and there's so much to talk about. We will take pieces from that book and discuss them in the future. From Rav Uziel as a rabbi, to Rav Uziel as a, involved in the, the political Zionist movement and founding the State of Israel, his relationship with other Jews, his relationship with Arabs, and trying to bring peace between the, the Jewish and Arab communities in Israel. The, the, number of, the number of things that Rav Uziel dealt with in one lifetime, the places that he went, the organizations he helped start, a person who is so well-rounded, it's very rare to come across in Jewish history. And that book is out of print, if I'm not mistaken, but you can still find some random copies floating around the internet. And if you can, I would just ignore me for the next five minutes and Google around and pay whatever shipping it costs. Just get one of those books into your hands. B'zal Hashem. Harabin Tzion Merechai. I think they're redoing it. Rabbi Angel with Rabbi Puskila. That's the, the, 
they say they're talking about reprinting it. Right, I just spoke with them today in the morning. Uh, that's right. Um, but when, you know, whenever we say things are going to be reprinted, you never. When I moved to the old city of Yerushalayim, uh, they started construction in the old city. This was 2008. And they announced that in October they would have an elevator to the Kotel. I was in uh, Yerushalayim now, 2020, January 2020, and they're still building the elevator. That, they didn't say which October. They said it's going to happen in October, but they didn't tell you which year in October. Uh, hopefully the project will get up and it will, it will start running very soon. I, I have a lot of hopes in, in those people working together. Rav Uziel was born in 1880 and he died in September of 1953, which makes him uh, 73 years old. Rav Uziel, though he spent so much... On Amazon. How much? 245 pounds. No, that sounds like a lot, a lot of money, so don't do it. I, I said spend a lot of money on shipping. Not a lot. <laughs> You'll find it. Keep looking. Amazon is not the only answer. Ravuziel, as much as he dedicated his life to the establishment of the State of Israel, Ravuziel merited only to see the first five years of the State of Israel. And when you read about his life and the things that he accomplished in those first five years, it makes you wonder if we would have had a chief rabbi like a Ruziel for the next 20 years, maybe the state of Israel in its future would have been in an entirely different place. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Ruziel was born in the old city of Yerushalayim. His father was a very big tamichacham there. Ruziel got married at a very young age. And legend has it, maybe not even legend, I've heard it from those who knew his family that his father told him that he knew he was going to die within the year after Rav Uziel's bar mitzvah. And he asked Rav Uziel if he would be willing to get married after his bar mitzvah so that he could see him at his chuppah as well. And Rav Uziel said, okay, for sure. And Rav Uziel gets married. He ends up later in life uh, remarried. I believe he becomes, his wife passes away. But Rav Uziel gets married a, less than a year after his bar mitzvah and his father is at his chuppah and at the age of 14, his father leaves him as an orphan. And Ravuziel, I put a little piece here on page one, on the right column, you'll see the metallicized box, Ravuziel's mournful words about his father. Ravuziel had a big zechut when he was very young to learn by the elders of Yerushalayim. Most notably, the chief Sephardic rabbi at the time, the Chacham Bashi, was known as the Yisab Baracha. He learned from him. He also was exposed to the writings of Rabbi Huda al-Kilai. Have you heard of Rabbi Huda al-Kilai? Who was he? Anyone know anything about him? He, he was invented Zionism, right? Right. So we're going to discuss some point in our learning together uh, about the early Zionist movements and who really founded political Zionism. You know, we always take credit as religious Jews. We were religious Zionists, but the political Zionists came. Uh, there's there's an agenda that's read into it read into the Zionist narrative, which displaces many of the religious and especially Sephardic uh, early fathers and mothers of the Zionist movement. Um, Rabbi Yehuda al-Kila'i was one of the early giants who really pushed the agenda of political Zionism. When Ben Tzir Merchai Uziel discovers the writings of Rabbi Yehuda al-Kila'i, those are really the books that transformed him into what you might call a religious Zionist at, at his time. At the age of 20, he already became a Ramana Yeshiva. A few years later, he had his own Yeshiva. Um, he was an expert in the laws of Shekhita. That's what made him a, a go-to authority in his early years in the laws of Shekhita. In 1911, the people of Yafo, who were called the people of the new Yishuv, there was an old Yishuv, which were like the old Yerushalmi Jews that were in Jerusalem, and the new Jews that were coming into the Tel Aviv-Yafo area. 
they also wanted a rabbi. And until then, to go meet your chief rabbi, you had to go to Yerushalayim. And Yerushalayim was, uh, was far away. Not just far away though in geography, but also far away in ideology. The new yeshuv, the younger Jews that were coming in, not all entirely religious, not all, they felt very out of touch, very disconnected with the rabbinic leadership that was in Yerushalayim at the time. And they were looking for their own chacham bashi, for their own chief rabbi. The problem was that under Turkish Ottoman rule, you had to fit very specific criteria to be the chief rabbi. You had to be born in that country, you had to be there for three generations, you had to be a Turkish citizen, and one of the few chachamim who fit the bill, and fit the bill well, was none other than Harav Uziel. That caused Rav Uziel to have very close connections with the Ottoman uh, rulers of Eretz Yisrael at the time, which helped him in many instances, uh, politically helping people in trouble. Uh, Rav Uziel was not afraid to use his power of influence at the time. And he became very close to the people who he was a rabbi of. In World War I, he was forced into exile by the Turkish government to Damascus uh, because of his political Zionist activity. Uh, but shortly after he was led back into Israel, even before the British took over uh, Israel, already Harav Uziel was led back in. In 1919, he became the head of the Mizrahi uh, movement. And at the age of 41, he accepts a job as the chief rabbi of Saloniki. Anyone know about Saloniki? What do you know about Saloniki? Saloniki. There was a big community there before the war. A tremendous. This is very good. This is like a... Yeah, Salon is the biggest, they called it the, the, the up Jerusalem. That's right, it was like the city of the Jewish people. This was a tremendous uh, job opportunity. So even though you may think he left Israel to go there, but really it wasn't so much a downgrade as an upgrade. He in fact replaced the rabbi whose name Rabbi Yaakov Meir. Rabbi Yaakov Meir was later a mentor of his in life. Rabbi Yaakov Meir takes the job as Chacham Bashi, as the chief Sephardic rabbi in Israel. At the time, by the way, there only is a chief Sephardic rabbi in Israel. There is no chief Ashkenazi rabbi in Israel at that time. So he becomes the Chacham Bashi, and Harav Uziel replaces him in Saloniki. You should know later in history, the next runner-up, once Rav Uziel goes to Israel, when Rav Uziel passes away in 1953, the next person that they wanted to be the chief rabbi of Israel, I wonder who that was? There was one great candidate. 1953. 1953. There was a chacham by the name of Rabbi Yosef Messas. We've spoken about him before. He was not even in Israel at the time, but they reached out to him at the time he was in Algeria. They reached out to him asking him to come to Israel to be the chief rabbi. And he declined, not because he did not want to go to Israel. Eventually he moves to Israel. He declined because he felt it would be disrespectful to Rav Uziel to pretend that he could fill in his shoes. And, uh, but, but he entertains us by sending his resume to the chief rabbinate in Israel. And that's how we know so much about Rav uh, Yosef Masas's life. He writes there about books that he never managed to print, some 53 works. And we only know about them, including a passport photo that he sent for his application. We only know so much about his life because of that application that he, he gave them the information they asked for, but then declined their invitation to join as the chief rabbi. When Harav Uziel is in Saloniki, he finds there that there's really some major problems with the Jewish community. He dealt there with Agunot. Uh, the reason why he was dealing with Agunot was not because men were dying and they couldn't find them, but he was dealing with a generation of Sephardic Jews for the first time who were becoming very secular and not interested in divorcing their wives in rabbinic court. 
and this left many, many women stranded. Rav Uziel came up with a very interesting solution of putting some kind of clause in the Ketubah, in which if a person gets married via the Bedin, then when the husband no longer wants to give a get, the Bedin will have the opportunity to release her from her marriage because they can nullify it retroactively. The other rabbis of his generation went to war against him and the other rabbis of Saloniki about this, uh, this clause in the Kedubah, to which Rav Uziel responded that this is not something he can do on his own. This is something he needs participation with other rabbis. They must get on, the, on board to come up with a solution. And Rav Uziel writes, I don't care what your solution is. You can come up with every solution you want. But there has to be a solution before this problem gets worse. Because it will get worse, and I know that the Chachamim will not care enough to, cause the, to come up with a, with a solution to this problem. Unfortunately, we're some hundred years later. And the problem is worse today than it ever was. And the Chachamim that have been willing to get together to come up with a creative solution for this problem, I would say they were far and few in between if there were enough of them to say far and few in between about. But it's not even that many that I could say far and few in between. Like the Rambam says, that there's three categories of people who study Torah. So the third category is so special, but there's not enough people to call it a category. It's just one or two or three people. Part of his conditions in becoming a rabbi over there was to, he, they had to promise him that he would have control over the school system, to control the direction of education of the youth, to introduce them to Israel, to Hebrew language, to Zionism. And essentially he pushes many, many of those young Jews to make aliyah to Israel. In 1923 he returns back to Israel and he becomes the chief rabbi of Tel Aviv, Yafo. And in 1936, Harav Uziel became the unanimous Rishon Lezion, the chief Sephardic rabbi of Israel. Now it's an interesting thing that since Rav Uziel passed away in 1953, there has not been one chief rabbi that has been unanimously voted into office as the chief rabbi. So everybody has come on with controversy. With Harav Uziel, I heard this from his student, uh, Rabbi Dr. Ezra Barnea, uh, he told me that Harav Uziel was the last, Mamash the last, the last one to be appointed unanimously as the chief rabbi, the Sephardic rabbi. They ordained him in the Rabban Yochanan ben Zakai synagogue. If you're familiar with the old city of Jerusalem, you might notice there's the four Sephardic synagogues. One of them is traditionally where they crown the next chief rabbi. There's some famous stories about him and his halachic rulings. When it came time for the Israeli soldiers to fight in battle, he himself went out on Shabbat to dig, uh, what do you call them, uh, trenches for the soldiers. To come. And they asked him, why are you doing this? I'm the chief rabbi. I have to set an example. He said, but how can you violate Shabbat? And he says, this is not violating Shabbat. This is saving the life of the Jewish people. And digging for our soldiers on Shabbat is pikuach nefesh. It pushes off the Shabbat. And he himself set a personal example. In the 1930s, there was a battle that broke out near Yerushalayim between Arabs and Jews, uh, a gun battle. And when Rav Uziel heard that these, I wish I had the words in front of me right now. Uh, uh, it's written in the book of Rabbi Angel. When he heard that the battle had broken out, he put on his chief rabbi garb and his turban, and he walks out into the middle of the battlefield. You can imagine the Arabs and the Jews see the chief rabbi coming out, and they, they stop shooting for a moment. And he comes out, and he speaks to the Jewish side in Hebrew, and to the Muslim side in Arabic. And I don't have his words in front of me. But he says, my brothers, 
and my cousins. He said, we are both the children of Avraham Avinu. This land belongs to the Jewish people. We will conquer this land. But this land is great enough for the both of us. This land is large enough to sustain both of us. This land is large enough to feed both of us. He said, and if you put down your arms, we could live in peace side by side. The war didn't end, but both sides put down their weapons and ended the battle with Rabu Ziyah on the battlefield. It may have been one of our last chief rabbis who actually spoke Arabic. You wonder if you're in the Middle East, uh, how you can have leaders who are not familiar with the language of the Middle East. Harabu Ziyan, in 1948, when the State of Israel was established, he made a point to go to every church and mosque in Yerushalayim and to tell them, I'm your chief rabbi. There's no uh, chief bishop in the Rabbanut and there's no uh, chief imam in the Rabbanut. I am your chief rabbi. If you need reparations in your houses of worship, if you need new books, if you need new things, I will take care of them for you. He wanted to make sure that all the citizens of Israel knew that he represented them equally. And Mord mentioned about the books of Rav Uziel. Rav Uziel's student, Rabbi Dr. Ezra Barnea, is getting on with his years and he's not able really to print books like he used to and to fundraise like he used to. And he did pass off his uh, mission to Rabbi Daniel Buskila and the Sephardic Educational Center. By the way, uh, the SEC is doing a Kenneth Rabbanim, a rabbinic conference this week. That's where I spend my mornings uh, for the last few days. And that's where I'll be spending them for the next week until Tisha B'Av, B'Zat Hashem. And I, I give them a lot of bracha and a lot of uh, blessing that they should be successful, not just in publishing, but to, to bring back works that we might not still have and to translate works into English that other people can access. And Kadosh Baruch should, should give them a lot of success in everything that they do. A few key issues that Rav Uziel dealt with before we get into what I want to speak about today. When Rav Uziel was dealing with the old and new yeshuv, the question came up, can women hold office? in the modern Israeli government. You're talking about before Israel was, so this is the 30s, maybe even the 20s, but really the 30s. So you have 30s and the 40s before the state of Israel was established. You had new little yeshuvim, kibbutzim, moshavot, and there were halachic questions that came up for the first time in 2000 years. Can a woman hold public office? Or maybe more crucial than that, do Jews believe that women have the right to vote? Now this is a time in the world, in general, which is struggling with this issue. The women's suffrage movement is, depending on where you are actually in the world, the, the world is, is reaching this conversation in America later than I believe in the United Kingdom and elsewhere. And Avuziel listens to the arguments that people are making against women having the right to vote. Some, some interesting arguments based on uh, religious sources, some absolutely ludicrous uh, ideas like women are not intelligent enough to have an opinion to vote. Which Uziel says, you know, I've met my fair share of unintelligent men. Are you going to tell me that we're going to take away the right to vote from anybody who doesn't fit your uh, bar of intelligence? Rav Uziel was a pretty sharp uh, character. Rav Kook was one of those rabbis who believed that women should not be able to vote. Now, I will say that those who are students of Rav Kook would like to explain his opinion as such that Rav Kook believed that votes shouldn't separate family members and that a family unit, a husband and a wife, should vote as one entity. And that it should be the husband who represents the family, and that it shouldn't be a situation where people argue, and it's a nice, it's a nice conversation to have, but at the end of the day, they count individuals. You don't vote based on counting households. And the question of can women vote was a real issue, and Rav Kook, and that issue really was against it. 
Haravuziel writes the following words in italics in, on page 2. Look at the bottom left of page 2. En hadat mekabelet. One's mind cannot fathom. Lishlol mehanashim zchut ishit zot. To deny women this basic personal right. How can you hold on to the rope from both ends? I mean, how could you have two contradictory beliefs? To make them accept the authority of those who are voted into office. But at the same time, not giving them the ability to decide who they're going to have to listen to when they have office. I mean, how can you expect that women are going to be obligated in all the things that society obligates them if they don't have a say in what society, where it's going and, and who these leaders are? Now, the fact that it took Avuziel to say such a thing, it should scare you, it scares me tremendously. But it makes me really proud to be on the side of history of Avuziel and say this was a Chacham who in the 30s was fighting a war that for other people was, was not something we should take for granted. He spent a lot of his life trying to unite the divides between Sephardim and Ashkenazim. Sometimes more successful, sometimes not so successful. I have a shiur called Jewish Stockholm Syndrome on YouTube, uh, which we taught in Israel. Uh, one or two of you were there. Uh, and Levinaz was there. Uh, and I, if you can and you're interested, I would love for you to check out that shiur later. Uh, someone mentioned here about Gil. Who was that? Uh, Daniel and uh, Levinaz. I think you both mentioned this Psak and Gil. Havuziel was dealing with a unique question of, of Jewish couples that were coming to Israel. Maybe the husband was Jewish and the wife wasn't. And they were now becoming equal citizens of Israel. The question was, are we able to convert people to Judaism knowing that they won't actually observe Torah mitzvot? Meaning, can we go through the motions of making someone Jewish, joining the Jewish nation while knowing that they're, they are going to violate halakha? And this was another major war between him and Rav Kook. And Rav Uziel ultimately rules the following thing. Let me read to you on page 3 at the top. Mikol ha'amu, from everything said above. Umidvar Torah yotza'a shemutar, it's permitted, umitzvah, it's a mitzvah, lekabel gerim vegiorot, to accept male and female converts. Afalpi shiyadu'a lanu shaloi ka'amu kol ha'mitzvot. Even though we know that they will not observe all the mitzvot. Because we believe that ultimately they will observe the mitzvot. And we are obligated to open up the doors to those who wish to join Am and if they won't observe the mitzvot, that's already their calculation of the Kadosh Baruch But we will be clean. Be clean of what? You just caused them to violate mitzvot. Haruvuziel thinks through this thought process a little different than we might think about it in 2020. And I'm not telling you, but tonight's shiur is not about what I rule the halakha, but about Haruvuziel. Haruvuziel says, here's what happens. You have a man, he marries a woman, they have children. He has a Jewish last name, maybe his wife... Uh, is very open to sending the kids to Jewish school. The kids uh, grew up in Israel. They joined the Israeli army. Another nice Jewish boy falls in love with this man's daughter in the Israeli army. Now they want to get married. She speaks Hebrew. She knows the holidays. She's Jewish like any other Israeli is Jewish. And now you have a choice. 
You can be strict about Giyu and say, hey, we won't convert them because they're not going to observe mitzvot. And then you're going to directly cause these people to intermarry because in Israeli society they're Jewish. Or you can say, listen, we'll lower our standards of Giyu and at least make sure that the people are technically Jewish and who knows, the next generation, someone else will uh, become observant and observe Torah mitzvot. That's already up to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And Rav Uziel viewed, if I could paraphrase him in a modern way, that anyone who is strict about conversion to Judaism essentially is lenient about intermarriage. That's how Rav Uziel saw this equation. What a Bedin should do, what a Bedin can do, what is acceptable for a Bedin to do socially. Listen, I have a Bedin for you. Uh, we deal with these questions. If I told you every day, it was, it's more than every day. Every case, every person, every family, every couple, everyone on their own. But Arbuziel was again trying to come up with an innovative solution to deal with the problem that other people avoided. So what do they do? What do they cause? They cause that you can live in a place like San Diego with 100,000 Jews. But you might have 50 or 60,000 Jews here that are, may not be halachically Jewish. So who won? You're, you held on to your values and your integrity. And who won? Who lost? 100,000 Jews. Believe it or not, Daniel. Believe it or not. <clears throat> now, if I could be fair, some 71% of them aren't even affiliated with a local Jewish community center or have never stepped foot in a kosher restaurant. So when we say 100,000, it's a big number, but don't think that we see all 100,000 of those Jews on any, any given day of the year. Last but not least, I wanted to walk you through some of the students of Rav Uziel. So you may know Rav Chaim David Halevi, uh, who will, we've quoted before, we will quote again. Rav Chaim David Halevi studied both by Rav Uziel and by Rav Kook. So he has a very unique combination of traditions that he received from both of those rabbis. Uh, Rabbi David Shlush, who is the chief rabbi of Netanya. Uh, you may know him most famously for his stances on, on uh, electricity, on Shabbat and Yom Tov. He was uh, very outspoken in that regard. He passed away only a few years ago. Um, in fact, when he passed away, I made it my mission to go to Israel and get whatever of his books I could possibly get before they went out of print, and I was right, they're out of print, so Bo Hashem, we have them. But Rav Shlush's Teshuvot are very long, they're very lengthy, but they are available for free on HebrewBooks.org if you're interested. His books are called Chemda Genuza, and he has a three-volume Shalot Teshuvot, which is a fascinating read. He's a very interesting uh, personality. Uh, Rabbi Dr. Avraham Shalem, who uh, you mentioned, Rabbi Buskila, Rabbi Avraham Shalem was the rabbi of the Sephardic Educational Center, which Rabbi Bu- he was a teacher of Rabbi Buskila uh, over there. Uh, rabbi Ezra Barnea, who I spoke to you about, he's famous for being the one to found the society of uh, Rav Uziel's uh, printing press, and uh, was a famous chazan, is a famous chazan actually, he has many recordings, he taught maybe the whole young generation of chazanim in Yerushalayim, he's the one who taught them how to pray in the traditional Yerushalmi tunes. I put a list here of books that Rav Uziel wrote. Uh, if you wanted to say which book of Rav Uziel should I start with, if you have the Hebrew skills, the English skills, I cannot recommend enough the Loving Truth and Peace, the Grand Religious Worldview of Rav Uziel. But I can tell you that if you're looking for a book to start with in Hebrew, so this is the first volume of his Shalot V'Chuvot, which is it's a, it's jumping into the deep end. What they did was, when his books went out of print many years ago, maybe in the 80s, uh, they put out a book called uh, Piskei Uziel, a collection of some of the most uh, exciting teshuvot of Rabbi Uziel. They just released, maybe five months ago or six months ago, a new edition of that. It's a two-volume set. It's very cheap if you know someone coming from Israel. You actually, believe it or not, in the UK have a much better uh, um, 
much better access to books that come from Israel than we do in the United States. I'm assuming it's a shorter flight, cheaper shipping, I don't know what it is, but you may be able to find this for sale uh, in the United Kingdom. This is a it's tremendous work. It really, it, you don't have to own the rest of his halachic works if you have this. It has extensive teshuvot of his that are probably the ones you'd be interested in looking up anyways. But without... Uh, yes. Before I went in, uh, you, you, you wrote about when you went into the Sephardi books, the Sephardi uh, library, uh, World Lab- Sephardi library. Yeah. And you picked up that, the, the Sephardim. So I went in not long after you did. Okay. And I asked, and he said they were out of print. So that was very, I was very like, what? They just came out. And he said, like, yeah, that we don't have them anymore. So the- I don't know if he was like being Israeli and brushing me off. Uh, the World uh, Sephardi library. <laughs> Uh, well, you know, it could be a combination of the above. They're being Israeli and brushing you off. Uh, but the best place to go for that would not be to the World Sephardic Library because they only keep one or two copies of those books and stuff. Uh-huh. Uh, the actual printing press of Uziel, which is just down, it's, it's by the Nachlaot area, they would have it, uh, Binyan Klal, I don't know if you know that, they would have it for sale over there. Um, if you remind me after the class, I'm happy to look in for, and tell you where, where they're selling them. I just, yeah, I just saw them time. advertised. But also for the people in the UK, I have gotten hold of some of his Sepharim from Layman's, oh. the big uh, online bookshop in the UK. They have some limited things and they do order in. They, they, they have ordered in. For me, uh, I've got some of the Chaim David Halevi Sepharim from there and they do order in. So if anyone's interested, um, it's definitely worth emailing them. So I'll tell you about Layman's. I actually have no idea who they are, but whenever I look for Sephardic books for sale, they're the first ones who pop up outside of Israel. So whatever they're doing, they do a good job at stocking up certain books that other bookstores don't carry. They're the main guys in uh, Gateshead. Oh. Even Sephardic books. <laughs> well, it's for the people online ordering it or talking about it all the way in San Diego. That's that's who they're ordering it for. Yeah, I can't imagine it's for the community in Gateshead. <laughs> <laughs> let's... Let's get started. By the way, if I could say one thing from Ravuziel that really touched me and I think resonates very deeply with me. Uh, Ravuziel, and it's, I mentioned this in his, the, the shiur on the Jewish Stockholm Syndrome. Ravuziel was adamant that though there are Sephardim and Ashkenazim, and those traditions are, are as far from each other as, as East and West, Ravuziel's stance was that it was not Germany that made Ashkenazi Tamil Chamim and not Spain that made Sephardic Tamil Chamim, but that it's despite those locations that we had the Chachamim that we have. And at any point in time, the Jewish people would be able to overcome the geographical places which they came from and join around, rally around one type of, of Judaism. Ultimately, when Uziel founds his world Sephardic yeshiva and he decides he's rebuilding the future of the Sephardic community, the rabbi who he appoints to be the yeshiva, the, the head of his yeshiva, is none other than Rabbi Eliezer Waldenberg, or the Tzitz Eliezer, who is not Sephardic by a long shot. Uh, Rav Waldenberg, was the chief rabbi of the Shariat Tzedek Hospital, was an expert in medicine and halakha. And when they asked Rav Uziel, why would you appoint an Ashkenazi rabbi to be uh, the head of a Sephardic institution, the first one in 2,000 years? And Rav Uziel said, He's the only one fitting to be a Sephardic Oshiva. And the truth is that any of the books that we have of Rav Uziel today are because Rav uh, Waldenberg made it his life's mission to hold on to those manuscripts. Most of the descendants of Rav Uziel did not continuing his tradition of religiosity. And it was uh, Rav Waldenberg who held on to those handwritten manuscripts and passed them off and sat as the head of the, the committee to reprint those works. And uh, if you ever wanted to look into an author that was fits right in here with anything that we've read, 
you want to look into the writings of Halav Eliezer Walter it's an unbelievable Tamikham, and we're going to get to his, some of his stuff eventually as well. But let's uh, look together at page four. Anything about Rabuziel before we get started? Yeah. So a few of you discussed uh, in the past about technology, about things that change, about halakha and, and keeping up with modern innovation. Halav Uziel, in the introduction to his book, Mishpatei Uziel, writes the following words. Page 4, 1. Bhotzi'i le'or sifriya katanze. When I am publishing this small work of mine, Yadati ki tishaleni, I know that you'll ask me, Lemi yo'il sefer ze. Who will this book help? What is this book good for? Harabanim hageonim. The geniuses of our generation, the Talmidei Chachamim of our generation. They all have access to the thousands of works of Jewish literature that came before them. Are you coming to give something to those who are already learning Torah their whole life? And if you are coming to introduce this to the broader Jewish community, Anybody who needs the answers to their halachic questions will just go to the Ohel Moed, to the tent of meeting. They'll go to the houses of study of the rabbis of the generation. They will help them determine practical halachot. To purify or to impurify this, or to prohibit or to permit. Those rabbis have a broad wisdom and understanding. So if you're printing this book of questions and answers, of halachic responsa for the Torah scholars, what do I know that they don't know, says Al-Buzia. And if I'm printing this for the masses, they don't need my book, because they anyways have their own teachers that they can go ask questions to. But on the other hand, Yadati, I know ki rabbim yivakuu the different people will critique my works for different reasons. These will say, There are those who say, Rabbi, you didn't say anything new. The rabbis have never invented something. The rabbis have never finally decided to allow us to do something that previously they didn't do. And he says, those who like Ohavei HaChadashot, those who love things that are new. But that term Ohavei HaChadashot is used also uh, by Rabbi uh, Shem Tov Gagin. In the introduction to his third volume of his book, Keter Shem Tov, he criticizes whoever was reforming Jewry in the United Kingdom at the time. He calls them Ohev Chadashot Baal Milchamot. It's a prayer in the, before Shema Israel that those who love new things are always the ones who end up going to war with everybody else. He was crit- critiquing a certain camp of Jews that I guess he was having a hard time with. Those who like to reform Judaism will always criticize our books. That there's nothing new here. We didn't need you to give us this information. You didn't reinvent the wheel for us. Ulumatam, on the other hand, the other side of the Jewish community will critique me in the exact opposite sense. You were lenient in a place where you were supposed to be strict. 
או החמרת במקום שאמור להקל, or you needlessly decided to be strict in a place where you should have been lenient. הארכת במקום שאמרו לקצר, וקיצרת במקום שאמרו להאריך. You spoke at length where you should have spoken briefly, you spoke briefly where you should have spoken at length. Harvuziel essentially is describing to you any good Jewish community, where nobody is ever going to be happy with anything that you do. Rabbi Yosef Masas writes in his book Nachalat Avot, that a leader of a community is like a person who's bound their arms and their legs, and they're put down on the floor before a hungry lion. And the community is like the lion. If they choose to devour him, they will. And if not, they'll wait till they're hungry next time and then devour him. But either way you go, you're going to be devoured. It's not for nothing that many Chachamim did their best to leave any position that served the Jewish community. Rabbi Akiva Eger, who's one of the geniuses of Ashkenaz, he writes, It's a play on a pasuk. He says, I find this position of the rabbinate to be more bitter than death itself. Uh, you find uh, the Malbim, the famous Malbim, who is a very interesting personality in his own right, has a very unique commentary in the Tanakh. You know, when I used to come to our parents with the commentary of the Malbim, he would say, listen, it's in the Malbim. It means the Malbim wrote it, but it doesn't mean that it actually happened that way in the Tanakh. You have to just know how to take certain things with a grain of salt. The Malbim was a very poor man, and he spent much of his life fighting whoever he felt was... Uh, uh, adding new innovations in the Jewish community. Ultimately, his life became so bitter, in and out of prison, all kinds of persecutions, he decided to quit the rabbinate altogether. And he opened up a business with somebody from the community selling shoes. And for the first time in his life, he was making not a lot of money, but a little bit of cash. He had some money at home. He had some food at home. And he was doing well. They were in business for a while. One day, he comes to open up his store. And he finds that his partner had robbed him blind. Stole the shoes, stole the money, stole his savings, stole everything, and just ran. A Jewish guy. He goes home, and he has no money to pay the bills. He has nothing. He has, he's broke. A few days go by, he still can't find, he doesn't have anything to start a new business with. So the president of the community comes and says, Rabbi, you know, we missed you. Why don't you come back to the Bera Knesset and take your job? And he says, I don't know. He says, Listen, you don't have anywhere to pay the bills, so why don't you come now? At least be poor with us. He takes the job and they say, I don't have a record of it, but they say that his first derasha, he got up in front of the community and he told them, he said, I want everyone to know before all this, uh, these masses here, I forgive my partner for everything, for stealing the merchandise, I forgive him for stealing my savings, I forgive him for returning me back to poverty. One thing I will never forgive him for is that I have to be a rabbi of a community again. This I will never forgive him for. This feeling of Rav Uziel that no matter what he does, he's going to be critiqued, is one that any serious Tamil Chacham feels. You're always going to have those who like you, and you're going to have those who hate you. And even those who like you, you never know how long they're going to like you for. There's a flip side to that. Sometimes those who hate you sometimes come around and decide they like you. By the way, I speak with no experience whatsoever. But I'm just sharing that some people that I've spoken to in my life have told me that you can never make the Jewish community happy, but hold on to the friends that you have. To all of these questions, I'm giving one concise answer. I am learning from my elders. And I'm observing your laws. Our rabbis taught us in the Midrash. And I gave you uh, on page 6. A few different Midrashim surrounding this Pasuk. Let's look at the Pasuk on, on page 6. This is from Shirat HaAzinu. So we're going to read it not so long from now. 
Hazinu HaShamayim Vadaber, that's one of the most beautiful parashiyot in the Torah. Uh, and in there, it says, Ya'arof kamatar likhi, ki tizal katal imrati, ki si'irim alay deshe, v'chi rivivim alay esef, my lesson will drip like rain, my word will flow like dew, like storm winds on vegetation, and like raindrops on grass. This is referring to the Torah. Our rabbis have very many interpretations as to what this means, and that's what really page 6 is. I doubt we'll get through them, but one of these is the source for what Rav Uziel is going to say right here. Back to page 4. Vamu, our rabbis told us, Kisi'irim alay deshe. Like storm winds on vegetation, on grass. What does that mean? These storm winds come and they shake up the vegetation so that it doesn't get old, it doesn't become wormy. You know, it's a natural process. The living things stay and the dead things, they get blown away. You must constantly blow storm winds over the words of Torah so you shouldn't forget them. Let us constantly work over the halachot again. So that the words of the Torah will not become rusty. If you don't constantly revisit halacha, the danger is that halacha will become rusty. And rusty things break. This was the attitude of our rabbis throughout all the generations. And this motivation of constantly revisiting halachot, reanalyzing halachot for ourselves, coming to new conclusions, weeding out older opinions that may not be accurate anymore. This is the reason why our rabbis never stopped writing works of halakha. If everything could have been codified in one point in time, and we just stopped and we're happy with what we had, then there would be no need for any halakhic literature. The reason why rabbis even study and write about halakha in the first place is to constantly revisit the halakhot that we have. This is the purpose of those works. And it says there's no other nation that has as extensive of a library, legal library as the Jewish people do. And there's where the title, Thou Shalt Not Rust, came from. Our desire is not to look for chadashot, not to look for new things, but to make sure that the Torah that we have is constantly updated. It's constantly kept in touch with reality. And this is the job of the posek. Look in the next section on page 4, bold, at the bottom right column. Hashofet, the rabbinic judge. Or the Talmudic decisor. There's no really good word for posek in, in English. I'll tell you that the term posek doesn't mean what people think it means. A posek, I mean, I mean a lot of things about the word posek that, that people think a posek is and it's not. But let's say that the greatest character trait of a posek is the ability lifsok. What does that word mean? Do you know the word lifsok? Lifsok. Yeah. To uh, to make psak to uh, decide halacha. Right. Well, well, the lifsok. We we'll use that word. What does it mean, lifsok? A posek. To 
stop, like to circus to like stop to cease. To stop, to cut, very good, soft pasuk, it's the end of a pasuk. A posek is somebody who knows how to make decisions. Somebody who is indecisive, by very definition, cannot be a posek. There are many poskim, we call them in a nice language in, in the world of halakha, we call them mirei ha those who are fearful of ruling halakha. And these people, you may know them, they're the ones that when you ask halakha questions to, well, I don't know, it would be better if you didn't, but you could. The people who answer halakha questions like that don't actually have any idea what they're talking about. Because halakha has to be decided. It's the curse that Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai in the Talmud, Masechet Shabbat, tells us that one day, they will search for the word of Hashem and they won't find it. And the rabbi said, what do you mean? Will the Torah ever be forgotten from the Jewish people? And he says, what do you mean? Of course it will be forgotten. How will the Torah be forgotten? They won't find a clear approach to Torah study alongside a clear, decisive, halachic path in the same place. Everybody will be full of what ifs and all kinds of fears and doubts and nobody will actually know what to do anymore in halakha. Says Rabbi Shemar Baruchai, that's the generation when the Torah will be forgotten from the Jewish people. I'm pretty sure that we... The concept. I mean, I'm, lo- I'm loving this as an analysis, saying actually what makes you a, what, well, what makes a somebody useful almost in, in one sense is the ability to say here and now at this point, here is where, here's where this question needs to, to, you know, to stop, right? And to actually, this makes it, this, this brings it into this moment, this issue, right now, right here, this is what, this is what it is. Full stop. Absolutely. And, and that's the... That's the meaning of the rabbis when you see sometimes in halakha this term comes up. You'll hear the rabbis use a word called en ladavar sof. If you allow yourself to continue on this trajectory, there will be no end. The, the reason is this rabbi who is a posek is telling you, if you continue thinking like this, there are endless things that you're going to be concerned about and you'll never be able to just stop yeah, here. And this, this is what I'm they're trying to, to... What? Very good. They have him on. Yeah, there's a number of places. This happens. Uh, absolutely. Um, and that bri- here is, sorry. Yeah. There's another concept I think that's very useful here. There's a parallel between the concept that you mentioned before of um, that that uh, about the rusting this it, it's very reminiscent for me of the socratic approach of saying effectively the unexamined life is not worth living you don't test it it's going to fall over it's engineering right you know you can't just build something you gotta you gotta give it a few smacks with a hammer to make sure that it stands up to the test absolutely yeah, it's like, of course. And, and by the way, I think the fear, the fear of an engineer saying, I can't smack my, my creation with a hammer, is because he knows that it's not going to stand up to the test of the hammer. And that's, that's very telling. When you see Jews that are, are afraid with the, 
afraid of engaging with something outside of themselves it's because they're really telling you that my Torah can't handle your questions. My Torah can't handle your test. Don't ask that question. And, oh, you can't even ask the question. That's right. And our Torah is Torah emet talan. We make a blessing with Hashem. This is a Torah of truth. Truth is going to stand up against anything. Uh, and that's, that's, it's, a, it's a difference in mentality. Which does bring me to the next section here. And that is the job of the Shofet. The job of the Poseka Talmudi. What is their job description? Hashofet, or Haposeka Talmudi, Enoyachol, he's not allowed, he's not permitted, Enoyachol, he's not allowed, Lomar Le'atzmo, to tell himself, or the Shoalav, or to those who ask him questions. Bechol Shela in any question that comes before him. Nete Sefer Venechezeh. Just grab me that book off the shelf, and let's see what the book says. And I will rule, posek, I will decide the halakha based on whatever it says in that book. Says Harav Uziel, that's not the way, that's not the method of those who are ba'alei hora'a, those who rule halakhot. Their obligation is to look at the origins of the halakha. To, to purify it, to reanalyze it, to clarify it, to, to rework that halakha. Based on that posek's own abilities, intellectual abilities and knowledge. The posek has to make sure that he uses his judgment, his logic. But I'm using his, her, you, you should be aware by now already that the, the language of Chachamim is writing in masculine, but it's not limited to that. To make sure that when a person learns, they're reanalyzing the sugyot and coming out to the proper, truthful conclusion. And any person who rules halakha, because that's what he remembers seeing in a book, without any kind of analysis on their own end. This type of rabbi is called a destroyer of the world in the name in the words of our rabbis. These people who say, oh, that's what the book says, what do you want me to do? The, the book says. I heard a shiur today in the morning from Chacham Yitzchak Shuraki, who I had the merit to learn with for the first time in 2017 in Yerushalayim. He once told me that essentially in the Jewish community today, you have a new type of Kerite. It's the Kerite of the Torah Shabal Peh, the Kerite of the Shulchan Aruch, the Kerite of wherever it is. Whatever is written, that's what it is. The inability to reanalyze a source, to look at something differently, to look at something in your own way. We're stuck. We're stuck somewhere. Scrolling. What? Scrolling. I, I don't want to mention names. Uh, <laughs> but but this, is, this is the... This is the reality of where we're in today. We're stuck. Uh, there's a book called Chachamim, Our Sages, by Rabbi Benny Lau. If I, can re- I started a series on it once, but it kind of fizzled out. Um, this book suggests that there are seven types of Pharisees, like the Talmud mentions. And one of them, and perhaps the type that we deal with the most in the Jewish community, is the Pharisee who su- struggles with spiritual paral- paralysis. This is paralyzed person. When it comes to halakha, when it comes to Judaism, they're afraid to move. They don't know what to do. Everything they might do might become an isu. Everything that might happen, maybe it's wrong. By the way, a word to the wise. Uh, for those who may be for the first time venturing into the world of religious observance, or if you have friends 
that are, I, I don't like to use titles like Bale Teshuvah or is that, but you'll sometimes see that people who are beginning the journey of Limut Torah seriously, that the first thing that happens to a person is to doubt everything they know. They doubt everything that they do. Because, hey, I, I just learned today that there's a way according to Halakha in which I have to put on my shoes. I have to put them on one way, tie them in a different way, and I have to pick up the washing cup with one hand and slip it to another hand. And I'm being taught that no matter how educated I am, how long I've been on this earth for, how many degrees I have, which job I work in, I don't even know how to put on my shoes in the morning. And what that does to a person is cause a tremendous amount of self-doubt. That self-doubt leads to a very, forget unhealthy religion, but leads to a, a very deep state of paralysis. And that extends to Judaism in which I'm afraid to do anything than what I was told I should be doing. And that's a problem that has to be cured. And the only way to cure that problem is through education, through learning sources. The goal would be for every person, not just poskim, to be able to learn halakha at its source. To be able to take any given topic and go backwards in time and to learn where did this come from, how did it develop, how did it evolve over time, who are the different Chachamim that discussed it, and why did it end up where it ended up today, and is that really the right place where it should have ended up? But you're here now in the three weeks, and the nine days, there's no greater example of a snowball effect of Jewish customs and traditions They're starting off very small, and, and ending up in a place today where someone recently told me that they were told that if they're at a department store shopping and the music goes on on the radio, they have to leave the room. I think to myself, you don't, you don't even know where that started. I mean, that's, that's a, a real avalanche. It started with not even a snowball. It started with a snowflake. How did we reach that place? It's a, it's a fascinating conversation how we've reached where we reached today. But it, it would, it's an obligation of every person to reach this level of Limut Torah. And those who don't, those who don't and they rule in halakha, it's better that you should, you'll never get a clear answer from them. Those people are dubbed by our rabbis as the destroyers of the world. Mevale olam, a destroyer of the world. So, um, I, this is the, the thing that I find most difficult is that it's, I find so many sources and I just find it very confusing and difficult to weigh up um, which to use in which circumstances and which kind of environmental factors and social factors um, should be thought about. Like, for example, um, after the last session, I asked you about um, women's performing um, non-obligatory mitzvot. And so I did some research afterwards because um, you mentioned some very interesting things and I was looking into like brachot, um, like whether women could say brachot on voluntary mitzvahs, um, and I was trying to look specifically for, you know, Sephardi um, rulings, um, and, uh, you know, ev everyone follows the Moran, which makes sense, um, apart from um, one, I could only find one Sephardi posek who, um, who ruled that it was okay for for women to say a, a bracha on um, voluntary mitzvah, mitzvah and that was Pacham um, David Halevi who was mentioned earlier um, and his um, if I could, could um, I think I have the quote here it says in a place where women are accustomed to reciting the bracha on a positive and um, time bound mitzvah one should rule for them that they continue to recite it 
and in the place where the custom is unclear it's desirable to rule for those who ask should not recite but one should not protest at all women who recite a bracha or anyone who rules for them that they should recite a bracha um so it's so f this is just one example of many many different um rulings where actually um the 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 environmental concerns he was concerned with like ashkenazim and sephardim living side by side and like a changing society and um family traditions it's it, but on the other side the majority rule is no like at what at what point is it okay to go with with a minority even when it makes sense for the social context you're looking in a lot of the time i see even very pro progressive prospects not just on this issue like i said on like lots and lots of different issues um ruling with the majority even when it doesn't seem to make sense for the social context and there is some even if it's extremely minor um precedent for a different ruling and i just find it completely completely confusing this on... but you mentioned a general question and a specific question so the specific question actually requires a lot of very specific depth about the brachot and reciting brachot and uh, mitzvot that are, are obligated and not obligated and why Maran rules what he rules Rabbi Chaim David Halevi is referring to two communities which women did recite brachot in uh, namely the Ashkenazi community who followed the Tosafot who Rabbeinu Tamu permitted such a thing as well as the North African Jewish community who specifically around Sukkot time when it came to waving the leaven at all uh, had a custom that women recited that blessing even though it seems in contradiction with, with the Shulchan Aruch. I mean, Rabbi Bari Yosef is right up the opposite alley of that. And so if you see a woman reciting this blessing, you can't even answer Amen to the blessing that she recites there. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's like a night and day. Uh, that is a really, it's actually not just a very important thing, it's an area of Halakha where I spent more than a few years trying to come to some level of clarity. I will tell you, and it's actually personal, I reached a final level, I think it's Siyad Zishma, a final level of clarity on Rosh Chodesh Av two years ago. My daughters were born, it's tomorrow is their birthday, the Hebrew birthday, twin girls. And in the hospital, I was struggling with the concept that some scheme had of not reciting a Shekhyanu blessing at the birth of a daughter. And uh, this, was, this was something that was challenging me greatly. And it led me down the rabbit hole of conversations of men and women and Judaism and Halakhan. Uh, at my daughter's, it wasn't their baby naming because it took them a long time to get out of the hospital, but when we first did a, a celebration, I maybe spoke for an hour following that whole trail of halakha regarding Asher Kedisham Zavitzivan, when whether women were exempt from time-bound mitzvot entirely or they were first obligated and then exempt from the mitzvot, in which case when they opt back in, they can still use the word Vikidishanu and obligate themselves. It's actually a very interesting conversation. It could be that when we get close to Sukkot, which is really when this issue first comes up in the Jewish calendar, it might be a worthwhile shiur to just pull out. I don't know if you like where the rabbit hole leads us, but it might be an interesting, like, specific halachic conversation to have. Absolutely. To your bigger question, I will say this. We oftentimes expect certain people to, to rule a certain way because of the, you mentioned social context they're in or the, perhaps the, the ideological camp they're a part of. I think it's part of what makes a posek a posek is that they're not predictable. You can actually, you can actually think that they'll come up with their own answer regardless of where you think they should rule. Uh, but I'll say even more than that, and this is not in a positive fashion. You know, you wonder about uh, we mentioned electricity, Rabbi David Shlush. So 
is electricity permitted or prohibited on Shabbat and Yom Tov? You'll say, well, the majority of rabbis say it's prohibited. That may be true, but from that majority of rabbis, and I don't even know how you quantify majority. Who are you counting? Who are you not counting? Uh, it's an interesting question. But from that majority, how many of them actually analyzed the halachic and scientific sides of electricity on Shabbat? Meaning, they may have an opinion that is not allowed, but is it really an opinion in halakha? Is it a halachic opinion or is it just a parroting of something that someone else said? In which case, when you start counting opinions, are you counting novel opinions? Or are you counting just regurgitated opinions? And that's where you get into this hard Is it really a matter of numbers? And there are some poskim who like to play the numbers game. And Rabbi Yosef was famous for that. When he would answer a question, he didn't just answer the question, he would pull out lists of rabbis who you never even heard of before. The rabbis whose books, you wouldn't even know where to find them unless you were in Rabbi Yosef's living room. You would, the only copy in the world existed over there. And the way he did it was he would drag you there and then be over the head with lists of rabbis' names. And that is a very interesting approach to halakha. But it's not necessarily the most accurate approach to halakha. Just because you have a thousand people who said the same thing doesn't mean that that's the majority opinion in halakha. Uh, and that's, that's why a posek will sometimes say, I'm not following a minority, but really at the end of the day, there are only two rabbis who discuss this matter. And from the two rabbis who actually analyze and discuss this matter, I chose like one of them. It's not a majority or a minority game. I saw that uh, Alexander Menashe, you raise your hand. Yeah, but you kind of actually answered my question. Oh, okay. Fine, Baruch Hashem. Let's keep going because I want to. I see we're getting close to our. Oh no, we we are at the end of our time. Let me just read to you um, another section. This, which is referred to as the give and take of halacha, it's like the dew of the heavens that falls down on the grass and it rejuvenates them that they shouldn't become wormy. The dew comes down to rejuvenate the earth and to make sure that it doesn't become dry and, and, and hard, and, but it constantly remains life, uh, full of life. And that is our obligation with halakha as well. To reanalyze halachot. He said, that's every person's job, to learn halakha, to teach halakha, to write halakha, to make sure that halakha is constantly revisited, so that it does not become shlo ya'alu chaluna. It should not become rusty. They should always be new. They should always be vibrant and full of life. That's our job as people who are committed to halakha. This idea of, of keeping halakha alive is almost the opposite of what we're taught about halakha. You know, we are very rigid. Halakha has to stay... I'm sorry, someone, do you hear me now? Yeah, okay. Um, the, we're taught the exact opposite. Halakha can never change. Halakha will never be able to, to be reanalyzed. Halakha is, we're orthodox, so we've been doing this forever. We're never going to change the way we do the things we do. Uh, by the way, you should spend a lesson just looking at all the things that this generation changed from what last generation did, only to realize the fallacy of that, that it's not even an argument, but that claim. And this brings Rabuziel to the next piece. Zot ve'od acheret. In this... And furthermore, a posek must take into, conditions, uh, into, into, into account the following things. The conditions of life. The shifting values of society. 
תגליות הטכניקה והמדע. Technological and scientific discoveries. מולידים דור דור שאלות ובעיות חדשות שדורשות פתרונן. These shifting things in society, technology, science, values that society has. New discoveries. These things constantly shift and make new questions. They create new questions in the Bede Midrash. And they demand answers. We are not able to just fold up our hands and say, Anything new is forbidden in the Torah. Anything our rabbis didn't talk about, we don't talk about it either. We, we, we don't deal with new things. You cannot do that. It's forbidden for a, a posaic, a religious leader, to, to deal with things that way. But on the other side, we also can't just permit it because it wasn't discussed beforehand. And we can't just leave these questions unanswered and let people do whatever they wish with these areas. But we must sit down and analyze these things. And Ravuda said that's the job of the poskim, that's the job of the chachamim. And therefore he says in the next paragraph in bold words, And so even though I may not be the greatest rabbi of the generation, but I felt that I also have to contribute to this conversation. There are new issues. There are pressing matters that need to be revisited that I have to give my two cents on. That's my opinion that I need to share. I don't invent anything. We also are not allowed to invent things. Rav Uziel is going on his uh, mission, which is to say, these are not new things, but these are things that he's extracted from ideas that have always existed. If you look with me on page 5, we're not going to finish this, but at least this paragraph. It's crucial to know that I'm not ruling halakha for generations. Because to rule a matter in halakha truthfully is not dependent on how much you know, but on how much assistance you have from HaKadosh Baruch This is what our rabbis of blessed memory taught us. Meaning halakha is with him in every place. He said, never did I sit down to a teshuvah and say, I want to be strict, I want to be lenient, and that's where I went. Rather, when I sat down to deal with the halakha, my only goal was, Hashem, allow me to discover the truth. In the bold, בחרדת קודש ויראת האמת ניגשתי בכל שאלה לכל פרטיה וספתי דוברו בתפילה עמוקה. Every time I dealt with halacha, I whispered the following prayer. יהי ראווה דאיקה מילתא דתתקבל. Hashem, I pray that my words should be acceptable. And then Rav Uziel writes on the bottom right of this column on page 5. ובכן אני מוצא חובה לעצמי להעיר הערה כללית. I wish to just make one general note. These books that I'm, these letters that I'm introducing in this book, they're only suggestions in halakha. These are not things that I'm ruling into 
practical halacha, not now and not for eternity. Only the Bedin Hagadol in Jerusalem is allowed, the National Court of Israel can make legal rulings that is binding on the rest of the Jewish people. Or at the very least, says Uziel, a significant group of scholars who decide, who lead the Jewish people, would be able to rule such things actually into halacha. Only that kind of bedin could obligate a generation to listen to its rulings. He said, but for me, for me, really, I'm just suggesting halachot. And those who wish to follow, those who wish to analyze this and accept my rulings, that's fine. But I'm not in the place, I'm not in a national standing in which I could change the course of halakha for the rest of the Jewish community. Rav Uziel, ends off in the left column thanking his community. And in bold, all of the goodness that his community did for him. Since I sat on this throne, that you've allowed me to sit on it peacefully and quietly. Ravuziel was always grateful to his position in Tel Aviv, Yafo. It was the only community that Ravuziel felt let him just learn Torah. Let him just rule in matters of Torah. And uh, if I spoke harshly about the rabbinate before, and I spoke harshly about the, the hard place it is to be in, I think I can share Rav Uziel's sentiment. And that is that I'm grateful to the people in this world who give me their time and give me the ability to sit and learn halakha with you without having to be afraid. What are you going to say? What are you going to think? And why did you do this? And why did he not that? And what? Because in Abed Midrash, we don't have to agree with each other. And I'm sure that if you keep looking into Rav Chaim David Halavi and other books and try to discover whether women should make brachot and mitzvot or not, and whatever conclusion you reach, it doesn't make a difference if we agree or not. But the fact that we're learning Torah together, you are the people who give me minucha and shalva and hashket. You give me quiet. You give me the ability to, you know, I don't get to walk everywhere in this town, everywhere in this country, and walk into the Bet Midrash and be welcomed warmly. But here, when I know that on Tuesday, I have an hour and a half of my time where there are people who sit and they'll learn and they'll ask, they care. So you do the same chesed for me that Rav Uziel's community did for him. And I just want to say thank you to you for that. And Bezat Hashem, the message of today was very simple. This philosophy of reanalyzing halakha, of not being afraid to adjust halakha, it's not the opposite of Judaism. It is Judaism. Rav Uziel is telling us it's the flag of any chacham. We don't need anyone to regurgitate old information. We can find the old information ourselves. We don't need anyone to write new books of halakha if all they are are copy and paste of the old one. What we need are leaders who are willing to deal with the challenges that this specific generation is putting forth. And those who don't, those who are bichibuk yadayim, those who say, Chadash, min Torah, I won't deal with anything new, or those who are simply too afraid, should step aside and allow those chachamim who are not afraid, are not afraid to give Jewish people solutions to the problems they have, those are the Chachamim that we pray, we say in our Tefillah, Hashiva Shuftenu Kevarishona, Viyatsenu Kevatachila, that we ask Kadosh Baruch Hu to return our leaders like the olden days. We're saying that there are leaders today. We're not denying, we're not asking Hashem, give us leaders. We're saying, return to us the type of leaders we used to have. If we could have chief rabbis like Rabbi Uziel again, if we could have Chachamim that led the Jewish people like this again, who are willing to look at halacha anew, to rejuvenate it, to make sure it didn't get wormy, to make sure it didn't get moldy, to make sure it didn't rust. 
If we had Chachamim who believed in the value of thou shalt not rust, then we would reach the next blessings. Hashem will return back to Yerushalayim. Hashem will bring us back. Hashem will merit to see you return to Yerushalayim. Because we have leaders. Leaders that have restored the beauty and the vigor to Torah Israel like it should have. Bezat Hashem. We'll do that together. Uh, my shoe is officially over now. If anybody would like to stick around and ask.